0: Family of God, good morning, family of God. Let's big up our Savior one last time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, being a new creation is a beautiful thing, amen. And I'm glad to be in the building this morning. I don't know about y'all, I'm not gonna front like this ain't a special Sunday. It is, amen. Somebody, yeah, this is this is a special day. Like like we, we can act like yeah we, we celebrate the resurrection every day. Yeah, that's good. But there but because there was a particular day, it makes this day banging to us. And so we celebrate it. Um we celebrate it. Um, um this is a hard day for the for the for the culture to use as a as a financial gain day, like you know, the birth, you know, like during Christmas, you can't do the same thing. Like ain't nobody having really many Easter sales. Um like, Christ died on the cross, man. We having a sale because he died on the cross. You know, and so um, during Christmas time, you know, it's, it's a lot of leveraging going on to leverage that day. Um, but this day um, must be leveraged by those who know the real meaning of this day, um, to, to leverage it for his name's sake. And so um, I've been enjoying our trip through the book of John. I've been enjoying how the Lord has been uniquely uh, crafting our time. And it's funny that the passage that God put us in today is a passage on the resurrection. It's crazy, right, how the Lord just sovereignly, providentially um, wiped his finger on us. We've been going for about, what, 25 weeks now. 25, that's crazy, right? 25 weeks, and we're in our eighth month. And we're thankful that God is doing a major, major, major work in the souls of a generation. And we're thanking God that we've been able to see Christ give us the grace to lock arms across generations. But today, as we dive into our text, as we dive into our text, it reminds me of just our culture. And looking at a day like today, we're reminded of death um, a whole lot. And in our culture, and in movies, and in music, people use death in so many different facets um, through the arts. Death, um, like in the movie 300, was used as a point of glory. Um, in the wake of many of the icons, the loss of several icons in our culture, um, death is a deep grief. But it's funny how people always want to work through people um, living on in some particular way. Like everybody, like it's funny how after Pac died, you know, all of these lost jams start coming out. And so, you know what I'm saying? Like lost jam, like Pac did this one. And so they're putting them out on wax. And, and, and Biggie now, you know, he just put, they just had him put out an album um, last year. I mean, so it's funny how even in our culture, even in our culture, we attempt to use technology to, to give resurrections to people. And, 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 and no matter how much technology you have, no matter how many imprints you leave here, it's not a real resurrection. But in our text today we see a not a technological resurrection it 's not a movie it 's not it 's not like oral tradition it 's a bona fide realistic up in your grill up in your face resurrection and so we, we close out in this section we close out what 's called the book of signs from chapter two to approximately chapter eleven or twelve. Uh, has been dubbed the book of signs. Um, The first sign we saw that Jesus and all of these signs were utilized for Christ to point specifically to things about himself through these signs that he did. The first sign was, of course, on water to wine. The second sign was the healing of the nobleman's son. The third sign sign was the lame man walking about a pool of Bethesda the the fourth sign was the feeding of the five the fifth sign was him walk Jesus walking on water and healing of the the next one was the healing of the blind man number 6 now we come to the seventh and final sign of course Jesus did a bunch of signs that can't be recorded but my man John uh, uniquely utilized these seven signs to point to a particular uh, 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 way of him highlighting who Jesus Christ is. And now we come to the climax. Today is the climactic sign that Jesus performs. And this sign is, 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 is so climactic that John writes the way he does the sign differently than he did the first six. What's funny is he began with a sign in the beginning and then explained the sign afterwards in the other sections. But this one, he, is, is, he does differently. He flips the script to show the climactic nature of this sign. He has Jesus explaining the truth about the sign that he's going to do before he does the sign. And what's powerful about this passage is God, Jesus Christ uniquely utilizes the lives of his covenant people to pull off this sign. And so today, I I just want to talk about with us for a little while, God let something happen to me. God let something happen to me. In chapter 11, we come to, our passage. He says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's not like a slang term, like he's ill, but he's sick. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Lazarus, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That brings me to my first point. Jesus' closest relationships are leverage for the props of the triune God. Jesus' closest relationships with people are leverage to give props to the triune God. We come in this passage, and it's on the tailwind of a bunch of rejection, a bunch of frustration, and a bunch of little triumphs where Jesus is slowly but surely dwindling the way that he pours into people. And so Jesus is kicking it with his disciples, hanging out with his disciples, and as he's chilling with his disciples, somebody comes to him. And as they come to him, Mary and Martha uh, sent word to Jesus that that their brother was sick. And what's so funny is the passage begins to lay out a few things about this relationship. It says, it was Mary who anointed him with ointment. In other words, these weren't just people. These weren't just any old Joe Blows who said that they were Christians, who said that they were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. These were intimate people who had spent something on the relationship. Matter of fact, it says, he whom you love. He didn't even have to say the name. It just says, the one you love, like the one, like, it's not like just love, like agape, just I just got to love you because it's so much about you I don't like. I just got to work hard to love you. The The, the sense of love here the sense of love here is an intimate, like when Jesus and Lazarus, like Jesus was a human being, so Jesus clicked quicker with some people. She said, he whom you love, I'm talking about the one you really, really love, the one when y'all got in the room, it's like y'all knew each other all your life. The one you love is ill. He's sick. And so we see that, we see that in this passage that God many times lets things happen to people who he's in the closest relationship with. Many of us begin to think that, like, a lot of us are hungering to get closer to Christ. A lot of us are hungering to get closer to God. But we don't realize in the reality of our passion to get closer to him, many times he will let something happen to you. And see, and see can you handle, listen, can you handle, like, I'm not talking about the warm fuzzies of the relationship with God. I'm not talking about, oh, I felt, I felt his spirit. Oh, Lord, have mercy. I'm not talking about that. <laughs> Chills going up and down your spines. Oh, bless God, I got a... I'm not talking about that. <laughs> and God, li- listen, Jesus Christ just said in chapter 10 that we're in his hands and we're in the Father's hands. But somewhere in the economy... Of God's sovereign and providential power, he allowed an illness to slip through his eternal knuckles. And the one who he loved for real, for real, the one who he was here with, the one who he spent intimate time with. Next week we're going to talk, Pastor Deuce is going to talk about the lady, uh, Mary, who, who, who broke uh, uh, some perfume, pure nod on Jesus and wiped her. He says, these are the people that God let something happen to. It's funny to me that people ask where God is, and they only ask where God is when something bad is happening. But when something good is happening, they never ask where God is. And so, in this passage, we 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 see we see a dichotomy. It's irony that someone who loves you will let something happen to you. But Jesus qualifies the statement. He qualifies it, but. Just because Jesus qualifies the statement doesn't make the frustration any less. Listen to what he says. He says, but Jesus, but when Jesus heard it and said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now, some of us are like, oh, whatever, like, who cares? How many of you have ever been through something and somebody told you, you know, God has been glorified through you and you wanted to punch them right in their face? (laughs) Like if nobody was there, you'd have snuck them. (laughs) I don't know who did that to you, but. I mean, like Jesus sends back word, like I'm on my way. Like in this instances where Jesus says, if you do, you believe, Okay, it's done. And then they get there and it's done. Right. Like Jesus says. Man, it, um, it's not gonna lead to death, but he's sick so that God could be glorified. Yo, could it be that something that's happening to you right now, God is leveraging so that his name may be put on display? Look, God anointed you in a relationship with him because you're bought with a price. And he bought you to leverage what it looks like for him to be shown off. And listen, he has the sovereign prerogative, the sovereign right, and the providential authority to let anything he wants happen to you. And then he wants you not to just, ah, I wish I had time. But he, But Jesus, Jesus is specifically wanting to glorify himself through your life. Now, we throw glory and glorify around, but let's, let's chop that term up a little bit because that's a term that you can get lost in what it means to be glorified or what it means to be. Let's go back because the word being used here is a child term of a Hebrew term, even though there's a Greek term being used here in the, in, in the New Testament. Um, doxa is the Greek word, but the Hebrew word is kabod. Kabod. And the semantic domain of this word means to be heavy, to weigh a lot. Glory, to weigh a lot, to be heavy. But it's to be heavy with something in particular. Like some of us, like, like, like you know, I got love hands, I'm heavy with some fat. <laughs> but these are, this is not filler heaviness, this, this is heaviness. This is like muscle, muscle, because what muscle weighs more than fat? This is muscular heaviness. When it talks about God's glory, it talks about the sum total of who God is put on display. His grace, his mercy, his justice, his wrath, his love, taken balled up into a knot, and shown off through a commercial called glory. Uh, Let me get some help from a friend of mine named John Piper. He'll help me out a little bit. (laughs) John Piper said, God would be unrighteous and unreliable if he denied his ultimate value. Disregard his infinite worth and act as though the preservation and display of his glory were worth anything less than his wholehearted commitment. He says, for it would not be right for God to esteem anything above the infinite glory of his own name. Everything in our salvation is designed by God to magnify the glory of God. God is supremely and unimpeachably righteous. Did you hear that? See, to be impeachable means somebody can kick you out of your authority. But God is unimpeachably righteous because there's nobody higher than him that can bring a charge against him. He says because he never shrinks back from a right assessment of his ultimate value. (laughs) A just regard for his infinite worth or an unswerving commitment to honor and display his glory in everything he does. God is driven to glorify himself and his son so that we might have a right estimation of him, that's Jesus, ourselves, and his stuff. See, God wants to utilize our lives. See, God can't fully glorify himself through us. Because if God fully glorified himself through us, we die. Like, our lives aren't big enough to tabernacle the glory of God. Listen, stay with me. So God has to set up little infomercials. And these infomercials, God said, look, if I just laid myself and just dropped all of my glory on you, you just bust open and die. He says, but what I want to do is I, I, I can't cut myself up, but what I'll do is I'll send a miniature glimmer of myself onto your life. And what I want to do is I want to put on your life a bunch of stuff that clutters, that that covers up the ability for man to be shown off so that by the time I shine something on it, you're blinded like when you wake up first thing in the morning and you don't have light in your eyes and somebody turns the light off and they say, turn that off, that's too much light. That's what it looks like for God to be glorified. The sum total of God's nature, and God wants to leverage it Leverage your life for it. Some of us will say, "Who does God think He is?" Like I ain't asked to be. To, like I, I wanted to get saved, but I ain't asked for Him to be using me how He want to use me. <laughs> like He need to back off a little bit. Like, like Lord, uh, check, send me an email. Let me know how You want to be glorified this morning. If I delete the file, then listen. That means I don't want to be glorified. I want you to be glorified in that way. But but if I send you back a reply message, like, I may send an attachment to give instructions on how I want you to be glorified. Like, all of us have in our lives our own ways in which we want to glorify God and limit God. But let me tell you something. Your life is not your own. And he has, listen, God has the right to have bragging rights. Listen, we live in in this hip-hop culture with cats saying all kinds of stuff about themselves. Platinum grills and going out like that and carrying on. Like, dudes lying about how many women they slept with. Lying about how much money they got. They don't know they don't make no money off their album. Like, all of this leverage, like, because, listen, uh, God, listen, when we, when, when the fall came, God didn't take away Amago Day. It was defaced. So God, glory is one of God's. Shared attributes. So man understands glory, but he doesn't understand it from God's perspective. So what fallen man does is he tries to live out the principle of glory separate from God. And so because he does it separate from God, he doesn't have a God to glorify. He either glorifies himself or herself or other people. But God says when he saved us, he saved us to reestablish what it really looks like for God to be. Like God don't need to be propped up, but he will allow himself to reflect off of our lives and push in people's face. So, so, so if you, if you want to be in close relationship With God, you better watch what you ask. Because if you really want to know what it means to be in a relationship with God, you're going to have to know that God is going to leverage that relationship so that he can utilize it for his own glory. But then he goes from there, and then he says, he says, the one whom you love. And then it says now, verse 5, he says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What's so funny is this, it's kind of like God has a strange way of loving us. Like Jesus, it says, stayed behind longer. He stayed behind. He, heard, he said, I heard you the first time you said it. <laughs> I mean, you know something happened to Jesus. Like, <sighs> <laughs> like, we got to know. That God is not oblivious. How many of us have been mad because God let something happen to us? And we got so mad that God let something happen to us. That it blinded our ability to see his glory. And then God kept us longer than we should have been in it. Because we refused to allow him to leverage our lives for his glory. Somebody in this room right now, you're in the thicket, and you're wondering why you're in the thicket. But the key to every miracle that Jesus does is a B word and an F word, and those aren't curse words. It's belief and faith. And a person... And what he's able to do. Not only that, Jesus operates on a different timetable than us. Look at the verses. It says, in verse 6, it says, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to to the disciples, Let us go to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you and you are going, you are going there again? Jesus answered, "Have there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Real interesting. Jesus basically says to them, listen, I'm not on a human timetable. I'm on a divine timetable. Like, it seems like Jesus is saying this darkness and light stuff totally out of context of what's going on. But he says it diametrically married and connected and not divorced to what's going on in the text. Because remember what's going on in the text is that somebody who he loves is sick. And Jesus said it won't lead to death. He says he's going to move towards the place where there's much persecution because Bethany is two miles out from Jerusalem. So if they would have caught word, then the people would have come out and began to persecute Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, listen. Are there not 12 hours in a day? Well, what is he using? In their day, people worked during daylight. They didn't work at night. And so what they did was, when they saw night coming, they began to try to wrap up their working during the daytime because nighttime was coming, and you won't be able to see work going on. Jesus says, "I am on an eternal timetable um, before before the cross, and this eternal timetable with me being in the world is what it looks like to be light. God has not sovereignly assigned for me to die yet until He says that I die. So I can go in the face of the person with a gun in their hand and a Knife in their hand, and if it's not my time, it's not my time. So I'm working all the way up until nighttime comes. God has a banging time so He said. So Jesus says, "Listen, you're not on the same timetable I'm on." I remember when I when I um went from um uh, the east coast to the west coast and went to the west coast, and I got this like a three hour difference. So I get there and I'm like, man. Like, it feel, Like I got there at 11 o'clock, but it feels like, you know how you get the afternoon sleepiness like around 2, two, four, two to 4 o'clock? You, you just get real drowsy after lunch. I'm like, I don't know why I'm tired. They said it's 11 a.m. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm on East Coast time, man. I, I know I'm here in, in this spot. I said, but, man, I'm still feeling what it's like to be on a different timetable. Same way it is in our life. God is on a different time zone than us and what he calls us to do is not complain about the time zone being different. See many times we complain about God's timing because our timetable is different. But while I was in Seattle, I had to get over it. I couldn't still like uh, like like act like it's earlier, I mean act like it's later when it's earlier in the day. And so I had to get myself in the position, listen, I had to get myself in the position to adjust myself to move back three hours even though my patience was three hours ahead. And that's what we have to do in our walks with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is saying to us today, that I let something happen to you, but you got to remember that, that my timetable is totally different and many times diametrically opposed to your timetable. Many times we want to move ahead of God and be out of what we're in, but God says, listen, you're going to submit to my timetable, and matter, matter of fact, I'm going to help you to get over your spiritual jet lag. I'm going to lag back, and when I lag back, you're not going nowhere. So Jesus lags back. Jesus lags back. And he chills. Jesus eating dinner, <laughs> washing his face, popping pimples, combing his hair, saving people, loving people, getting in the theology. You ever heard somebody, just you ready to go? And they just talking, just talking, talking, talking. talking. You're like, I'm ready to go. Like Jesus lags back for a reason. And he doesn't lag back to be a nuisance. He lags back for the purpose of his glory. Because many of us see God as a nuisance rather than a blessing. And so in this passage, it says, after saying these things, verse 11, he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Our friend Lazarus (laughs) has fallen asleep. And then he goes further and he says, But I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will, he will recover. I mean, he all right. He says, Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there. Wow. Jesus says to teach y'all a lesson. I'm glad I didn't show up. Like sometimes God is so passionate for his own glory that sometimes it looks like he hates us. you ever felt like God hates you? Like how many of y'all ever prayed that? God, you hate me, don't you? I'm sick of you wanting to be glorified. Why you always gotta be on display like you something? We don't say it with our mouths, but our hearts say it every time. And right here in the passage, It's beautiful for Jesus to say, I'm glad for your sake that I didn't show up when you wanted me to show up. He says, and I did this so that you might believe. Like I'm convicted, convicted, convicted about my belief. Many times I begin to waddle in the frustration of God not doing things my way. And what I'll begin to do is I'll stop believing, and I will begin to complain, and I'll begin to get frustrated, and I'll begin to talk smack, and I'll begin to slander, I'll begin to gossip, and all of that corrodes my ability to believe. And so because of that, God has to open up his eternal knuckles and set a timer on a trial. And when he sets his timer for it to happen, it's to reawaken my corroded unbelief and cause me to begin to believe again. Many times we as Christians, especially in our circle, are so theologically driven that we don't believe God for anything. Like, I'm I'm not going to pray that. I'm just going to say, thy will be done. But Jesus says something interesting. He says, the entire purpose for reason why I'm lagging back is so that you can believe again. Now, these are people who are already Christians. These are people who are already following Jesus. These are people who have given up their lives for Jesus. But he's standing there with them. They're kicking it together. And he says, the reason why I hung back, the reason why I'm falling back is so that you can believe. Then he then he says something interesting. He says, he says, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, "Yo man, let us go also, man, that we may die with him." Like, what is Thomas talking about? <laughs> I mean. I mean, so in this passage, he's thinking, he's thinking decently, but it's still not the same as what he's believing. And so Jesus Christ has to inform him. So the first thing we got to know is, is, is that Jesus Christ leverages the lives of his people to give props to the triune God. But not only that, Jesus intimately engages those who God uses for his props. Jesus Christ intimately engages those who God uses for his props. Now, before we read this next section, I want to take you mentally back to John chapter 10, around the the 36th verse to the 42nd verse. And in that passage, we see two women, two ladies. One is cooking, grilling food, getting new water. But then what happens is, is she says, Jesus, don't you care that I'm like all around here doing all of this work? And my sister got the nerve to be sitting at your feet looking at me like I'm doing something crazy. And Jesus says, he says, Martha, Martha. <laughs> he said, you're worried about a whole bunch of things. He says, but Mary has chosen the better. You'll see. That knowledge of the two of them in this passage because he deals with both of them differently. Watch this. He says, now, when Jesus came, he found Lazarus already had been dead in the tomb for four days. What was just a quick side note, a quick footnote. In Jewish culture, they believed that when a person died, their spirit hovered over their body in the tomb for three days. And so they would kind of kick it in the tomb. This spirit would kind of walk around and chill out in the tomb. On the fourth day when they began to smell the stench of their body, which is the fourth day when decay begins to really really set in, they would dip. And so probably this background, they, they, they he may have said, "Yo, it's this is the time when usually some 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 stench would set in." And so but but he's not using that theology in this passage. This is verse 18. It says, Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. What they used to do in those days is when somebody died, I mean, everybody and their mama would come out to the house. And it wasn't like ours. You know how we at the house, we cooking fried chicken, collard greens, black-eyed peas, and everybody laughing and talking about, man, Willie was crazy, boy, I tell you. Man, you remember the time when Willie—no, they're not doing that. In Jewish culture, everybody would come to cry. Matter of fact, some people would hire people as professional whalers. And they were in there and and, and and it was crying and it was grieving because the grieving period was seven days. And so they're four days into the grieving period because he's been in the tomb for four. So they got three days left of the official grieving period, but three weeks they wouldn't, they wouldn't wash. They wouldn't take it, they wouldn't comb their hair, they wouldn't brush their teeth, they wouldn't do anything for three weeks. In, in, in response to grief, but seven days, they would be in the grieving period. And it says, and when the fourth day came, Jesus started trekking. But Jesus came in the midst of the grief. And now listen to what he says. He says, so Martha heard that Jesus was coming. Somebody went, ran to Martha, said, Martha, Jesus is coming. Mary's sitting there, the weepers are sitting there, but Martha's the only one that gets up. She went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She off the hook. (laughs) She goes up to Jesus and practically blames Jesus for her brother dying. Like Jesus, if you would have came through when, when I wanted you to come through the way I wanted you to come through, my brother wouldn't have been dead. Have you ever railed the judgment of God like that? How many of you have ever imagined what it would be like if God didn't let that particular thing happen to you? How many of you have even imagined and created a world in your mind? Man, if I didn't, if God didn't let me do that, man, I could have been doing this and I could have had this. Me and this person could have been here. And so she, she, she has all that in mind. Lord, if my brother was here, we'd be eating unleavened bread and fish sipping on wine, chilling. And she says, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. In the midst of her grief, she shoots out a theological principle. But looks how Jesus Christ responds to her shooting out that theological principle. It says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I mean, I know the theology, so don't, like, I'm grieving right now. So, Jesus, let me grieve. Don't be trying to get, like, I I gave you some theology because I know how you are. You always want to make me focus on truth while I'm going through something. Look, I'm just, look, it was, a look, I don't need to hear all that right now. Listen, I'm just telling you real quick. I told you already. I know you can do it. Now, don't be tripping now. I mean, so Jesus start quoting on her, quoting verses and carrying on. You ever been going through something and somebody quote a verse? Like try to focus you in on God? Like glorifying him and stuff like that in the midst of difficulty, remembering his truth? Shut up. But Jesus chooses, Jesus chooses to zoom her in. on theology. And many of us have gone through stuff where theology has never become a part of our difficult time. And when you never let the truth of scripture influence you, you'll stay in what you're in longer until it gets in you. But then he says, Jesus and then after that it says, Jesus I am The resurrection and the life. Ego I me. I am, present tense. I am right now, right in front of your grill, the resurrection. The resurrection is not merely something that will come later based on you remembering Daniel from your synagogue studies. I'm talking about the resurrection is standing right in front of you. See, now God does want us to focus on the eschaton. Y'all with me? He wants us to focus on our eternal hope, but Jesus doesn't want her to merely focus on the eschatological principle of the future time. He wants her to get it now. Y'all missed that. He says, I am, not I will be, not I'm going to be, I'm fist to, I'm about to. He says, no, I am right now, right in front of your grill, standing in front of you toe to toe, right now the resurrection and the life. Do you believe it, brother? Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall live. (laughs) And everyone who who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he asked her in the midst of the trial, Martha, do you believe this? Why does he ask her, does she believe this? She just spit some theology to him. But he reaffirms and expands her theology and says to her, do you believe this? You can quote scriptures. You can quote commentaries. You can even pass a couple of Greek verbs. But above all of that, God wants to know, not can you store it away, but can you believe it? In the midst of her spittiness, he challenges her to believe. That's the challenge of us today. Do you believe this? Not just that I want to make your life better. But do you believe not that I can raise your brother from the dead? That's not what I'm asking you. Do you believe I am the resurrection? And I am the life. And then she said to him, yes, Lord. I mean, dang. Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who is coming into the world. There you have it, Jesus. I believe. And it's powerful to me how he works with her and how he deals with her. And he begins to spew theology at her, but now look how he works with Mary. Y'all with me? He says, it says, and when he, she had said this, she went and called her sister, Mary, saying in private, lying to her, the, te- the teacher is here, and he's calling from you. Get up. you always chilling. Get up. Jesus is coming. He's two miles away. Get your behind up and come down the road. He's asking for you. <laughs> Like Martha's still working. She's still running around. Martha working. Let me get Jesus coming. I don't want Jesus to be offended that we ain't come out to him. Get up. And she, and when she heard it, she arose quickly to him and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him two miles away. So, look, Martha went, ran up. Two miles. Now you gotta understand what type of gear they had on. Like like they have on like some spandex or something. You know what I'm saying? Like homegirl had on a feminine tunic. She had on something on top of that, her head covered. Home girl jogging two miles back and forth, running. Then she, then Mary has on, she has on her grieving clothes, and she's moving back and forth, and she's weeping and crying and carrying on, and then she jumps up and runs off, and she runs two miles. Now, listen, now, Mary ran four, Martha ran four miles back and forth, Mary running two miles. Now, check this out. Y'all got to see the funniness in this passage. It says, and when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary arise uh, quickly and go out, they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Like, they're like, where's she going? After about a quarter of a mile, they running and kind of like, I, I mean, I know we're supposed to be consoling her, but she done lost her mind. Where is she going? Because, you know they, ain't know, they don't know where she's going. So they running. So they run. A group of people run two miles. And then, Je- then they come to Je- Jesus, Jesus? Martha, we and so they get here in the passage. Then you see Jesus' interaction with Martha. You gotta see the irony. Then he says, He says, now when Martha came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Yeah, Pastor Dew said she was probably tired. Like it wasn't reverent enough. Ugh. And- <sighs> She fell at his feet, and the first thing she said out of breath, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus is standing there. His disciples are standing there. Mary is at his feet, and it's a parade of people behind Mary and in front of everybody Mary says Lord if you would have been here my brother wouldn't have died there's no but after this statement she left that statement dangling in the atmosphere take it how you want then he says Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come with her also weeping he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled jesus looks up and i've never done a study on the greek words in this passage till before this week and i was appalled at what i found it says jesus was moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. When he saw all of this display of grief, this really doesn't do the translation justice. Jesus being deeply moved can be translated, he had mixed emotions of anger. And he said, and he was deeply troubled, emphasizing Jesus was angry. What did, I mean, her brother just died. What is Jesus mad about? Jesus then says to her, he says, where have you laid him? And she says, Come and see. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Now, what did he weep about? Jesus, having had experienced what it was like to be in matchless paradise, took on an additional nature and became a human being. And for the first time experientially, he knew what it was like to be a human being because he had never experienced it before. And now he's on the doorstep of his crucifixion. And on the doorstep of his crucifixion, some of his closest disciples are crying because they lost their brother. And he's trying to get them to believe. And when she comes to him, when she comes to him, she's weeping, she's falling out, she's tripping. And Jesus says, the Bible says that John, John says that Jesus was deeply moved. Jesus was angry. And grieved at the same time. His tears was not merely tears of empathy. The word here for deeply moved and troubled is a word that is used of a righteous anger. It's a word that's used when someone, like in the New Testament, it says, spur one another on to good deeds. That literally can be translated, make one another angry about doing the things of God based on the things of God not being done in the culture. Then it says, don't forsake your assembling of yourselves together as Christians. Here in this passage, it says Jesus was angry, but Jesus wasn't merely angry at them grieving. He was angry at their unbelief, and he was angry at death. He was angry at sin, and he was angry at Satan. He was angry that he's standing here and he's having to deal with a fallen world. And he's seeing the nutrition of the results of the fall. And at its bedrock is death having power over his people. And so he's standing here and he's looking at his closest, his closest disciple falling on her face. And his other closest disciple dead. And Jesus is gripped with empathetic pleasure. But also he's frustrated with the circumstance of this fallen world. Jesus wept because of the world's condition. And he's empathizing with the fact that his people have to live and experience sin, death, and the devil. He weeps. And in the midst of his weeping, people say, see how much he loved him? They limited his grief. They limited his anger to the person. But they didn't see the bigger picture of it. And so then he goes and he says, where have you laid him? She says, Lord, come and see. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said... Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also kept this man from dying? So it's speculation in the camp of why Jesus is moving forward. So you see that Jesus intimately involves himself with his people. You see how he engages her theologically, and he engages her emotionally, but it's it's deeper than just empathy. It's his grief over the state of the world. I remember February 5th, 2000. I'll never forget it. Never forget that day. I was on my way to my Old Testament introduction class, my last semester seminary. And I got a phone call with my wife. It was 10 o'clock. I was late for class. I'll never forget. And at 10 o'clock, my wife called me. She was pregnant with our first child. She says, I think you need to come here now. There's no heartbeat. She's six months pregnant. We got registrations at Target for... I drive up the highway, 75, center of Dallas. And I am angry, angry, angry at the world we live in. Our experiences in this life with a fallen world should sometimes Make us angry. Many times we fall in love with a world that hates us. And Jesus steps back and he gets so frustrated with the predicament that he weeps. But Jesus doesn't just want to listen, Jesus just doesn't want to weep over the condition of the world. He wants to do something about it. And so his tears are not just tears of anger. His tears are not just tears of grief. But it's tears of the groaning, of the glory that he wants to get. Brings us to our last point. Jesus reveals God's glory to those who are intimate instruments for his props. It says here, it says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, and it was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus stood at the front of the tomb. They had tombs and mountains. And he says, Take the stone away. (laughs) Then there it is again. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, now, Lord, now, I, okay, okay. The gig is up. Like, what's going on right now? Like, God, I, I, be, I told you I believe. Like, what, what, why in the world would, like, what, what's going on here? She says, Lord, by this time, they will be an odor. Like, ain't nobody trying to smell all that for the glory of God. Like what? What are you doing? For he's been dead for four days now. It's stinking in there. Jesus turns to her and says, "Did not I tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God?" He turns to her again, and he reaffirms. He says, "Listen, if you believe." You won't just see God get props futuristically, but you'll see God leverage your life right now for his glory. Take away the stone. What in our life is in the way of God being glorified? What are we scared for God to push back? What are we scared now you got to understand, these weren't no little stones. These stones were hu- huge joints. These cats move over, and a group of them begin pushing the stone slowly away. So you got Mary, their family, people from Jerusalem, a bunch of extended family, Jesus' disciples. And after three days, all of a sudden they push the stone back. And while the stone is being pushed back, they're frust- he's frustrated with her unbelief. And everybody goes, ooh, to the stench of a dead body. And Jesus says, if you believe, didn't I say you would see the glory of God? You'll see God's value in a commercial right now. And Jesus In the midst of everybody, the stench of a dead man lingering in the air of a decayed body. And what they would do is they would wrap the body. And when they would wrap the body, they would wrap them in what they used for papyri. And what they would do is they would, before they wrap it, they would soak it in myrrh and frankincense and all types of different spices. So that when they wrap the body, it would hold off the stench. They didn't embalm in this culture. And so what they did was they would, they, in order to keep the arms bound, and they, they, and they also would, they, they would wrap it around his arms, around the torso, and his fingers straight. Because the person was still, they probably had to break the body parts in order to keep the person still. They would would wrap this, this around their mouth to keep their mouth closed. They would wrap it around their eyes. And so they remembered that they laid their brother here. And he's laying in there dead and decaying on this stone. And Jesus, after rebuking her, turns his head to heaven. And when Jesus turns his head to heaven, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Past tense. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around. Like, I'm not saying this because you and I aren't on the same page. I'm just saying this for them. That they may believe that you sent me as a missionary to planet Earth. And when he had said these things, He cried out with a loud voice. The stone was removed and the stench was coming out and people were weeping. Jesus yells out, Lazarus! Come out! He didn't need to yell. But he did, the Bible says. And somehow, in some way, shape, or form, God sent Lazarus's spirit from paradise back into his body, unbroke his limbs, and undecayed his body. And Lazarus laying on that stone. (gasps) And he's laying there like. I don't know what. Can you imagine what Lazarus was feeling? Like I'm not dead. Like can you imagine being put in a casket and not being dead? Ah, I'm not dead. Somebody help me. Lazarus is in there. Maybe through the strips, he could see the light from the outside. I don't even know if he knew where he was. And he responded, I don't know at what point Lazarus was back in his body and he could hear Jesus say, come forth. Maybe before Jesus said, come forth, while he was praying, God began the miracle. Oh, my God. And so Lazarus is in the tomb, wrapped up, and Jesus says, come out. And Lazarus probably, I mean, he had to fall on the ground. And kind of use his head to kind of, he kind of, kind of like this, like, then Lazarus kind of like, whoa. He leans up against the joint, and people like outside, like, what was that? What was that? And all of a sudden, this cat is coming out the tomb. And he's been dead for four days, and he hasn't opened his eyes in four days, so he wasn't just physically sleep. He was not in his body, so he hasn't used his body in four days. Now, the stench from his death, I wonder was it still in the air? And when he comes out of the tomb, Jesus says, Loose that man and let him go. Now, he was probably nude under it, so they had to like just take it off of his face and so that he could be able to move in his arms. The greatest miracle that ever happened outside of the cross of Jesus Christ is the resurrection of Lazarus. And Jesus doesn't do this miracle so that Lazarus could be glorified. And he doesn't merely do this miracle so that we'll know how to glorify God during difficult times. Know what he does this miracle for? So that we may know and believe that he is the resurrection and the life. Now, listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to the context of the miracle. Remember, not future resurrection, right now resurrection. He does this miracle so that believers would know that he's able to turn things around even now, not later. And it's a picture of his death. It's also a picture of the believer's ability to get out of the grave. It's a, it's a future picture of the eternal resurrection of all believers coming back with the Lord Jesus, coming back to, to make war with all of his enemies. But specifically in this context, it's so that the people that are standing there and the people that read this story will know that Jesus Christ is presently the one who sparks resurrections in our life. I don't know what in your life is in a tomb. I don't know what in your life is in a stench. I don't know what in your life is died. But Jesus Christ has come to call us out of our tombs, to call us out of our dead. It's not just merely so that we can get new bodies, but Romans 6 says that we were dead in our trespasses, and we were baptized into the death of Christ and raised from the dead. And because of that reality, we're able to experience and dispense the reality of the gospel for people to be raised from the dead. But Jesus Christ centrally being the resurrection and the life. Today, if nothing else you walk away with, I pray that you would walk away with the reality that he is the resurrection, present tense. Not will be the resurrection, future tense. But that he is the resurrection and the life. Maybe you're here today. Some of this lingo maybe passes around you. But every one of us are dying to die again. Everybody. Everybody. I don't care how much weave you got in your hair, I don't care how much the, how they shaped your hair up around the corner, I don't care what type of gear you got on, it's all an encasing tomb for a pending death. And Jesus Christ says, no matter how much you dress up this dirt, you're going to die. You can put makeup on it, you could do whatever you want. You can wash it. But Jesus Christ is, is coming in the reality of us knowing, listen, that all of us are fallen and all of us are separated from the life of God. And that the beef that God has with all of us, because of that, God has a beef with every last one of us who doesn't know him through Christ. And that beef is because of our fallenness and because of our sin. And what Christ did on the cross is God placed the beef that he had with us, past, present, and future, on Jesus. And when Jesus died, was buried, and got up out of the grave, God shut down the beef with those who trusted in Jesus Christ. And those who admit it, who admit that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Simple but profound truth, but nutritious enough to save your soul. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, the God-man, as your part, as your your sin-bearer. The one who carried our mistakes, every head bow and every eye closed. If that's you,